New Photic Realm announcement. Uh, submission windows for upcoming issues. Issue 10, the theme is justice. That's hard-boiled fiction with a supernatural twist. The deadline for that will be April 1st, 2020. Issue 11, the theme is kaiju. Giant monsters terrorizing civilization. Deadline will be October 1st, 2020 for those stories. Issue 12, the theme is lycanthropy, which is, of course, self-explanatory. Um, it can be any type of animorph with a bloody twist. Uh, so I guess that's werewolves and Jesus, giant, I don't know. What do people turn into? Seals? I've just got a little seal on my desk, so I thought of that. I don't know. You have to be more imaginative than I just was. Uh, but the deadline for lycanthropy, January 1st, 2021. Good luck to everyone submitting. is Joe Quinnell, author most recently of the novella The Mud Ballad, which is out now from Weird Punk Books. It's part of their new novella uh, line, which is uh, looking to shape up quite nicely. I hope you will, uh, I hope you enjoy our chat. I hope you'll seek out this book. If you are some sort of creative who wants to be on the show, or if you want to tell me anything about the show, you can always do so using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. But that's enough intro chat from me. So here is my chat with Joe Quinnell. So tell me about Seattle. You've been there? Um, yeah, I've been here for coming on eight years now. My partner and I moved here from Montana. Uh, yeah, that time. And it was just wanting to leave a really like conservative state where we had both grown up um, and just kind of like we both came from pretty small towns, so being able to come into the city was really cool. I think I'm getting to that point sometimes where the city feels a little too big now, but I think culturally and like as a queer person, it's really much nicer to be here than like in really deep red conservative areas where we were from. Mm -hmm. And like I wasn't like able to come out there at all just because it wasn't a safe area. So like, being here it's like it's a nice progressive city like mm -hmm. progressive in name only there's definitely like that neoliberal vibe at the same point there it's very tech bro heavy as well so you see like a lot of class divides um there's issues with racism here but it's that really liberal issue where like folks will wear black lives matter shirts but still like price people out of the city um and so it's definitely, I love the city, but it's not without its problems. But mm -hmm. I think like there's that point where when a place becomes home, it's that time that you do get to see all the problems, but then still like also be able to find the reasons why you like it there. Yeah. I mean, I'm always interested in like, I've only been to America a few times. I don't know. I've never been to Seattle. I'm always interested in like the what characterizes different places of America because I'm not so familiar with that and also um someone who now lives in a different country that notion of um just how great you think it's going to be and then how great it is at first and then how the reality of just life itself settles back in again absolutely yeah mm. <laughs> like when I I think when I realized I wanted to move to Seattle I was 19 and I had like taken a greyhound from montana to come to a house show that was like jesse michaels from operation ivy's new punk band playing and like it was 
still to this day probably the one of the most insane shows I think I've ever seen where like I don't know how the cops weren't called on um, just this like small Livingston pa- living room packed with like 200 punks just like losing their shit and so I was thinking like I want to move to the city where like I see this every show I go to and mm-hmm. since living here I have never been to a show like that okay so. It's interesting to see how, like, what you perceive something is going to be and, like, the reality of it playing out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, I, uh, I love visiting London. I studied there for a year. But I would, I would recommend only, like, visiting London, doing all the fun touristy stuff. Yeah. Not getting shouted at by homeless people on your yeah. way to <laughs> study a bunch of boring stuff. That was not as great. It's oh, cool yeah, telling there's... people that you live there, you know. <laughs> Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. There's always that thought of like, and I've seen that like going back to Montana, like people think that when you live in a big city that you do have like an understanding or like you like uh, that you have a seasoning or a culture that's like a little bit different, but no, it is really just like avoiding getting yelled at a guy on the bus who <laughs> is clearly clearly been out in the sun for a few too many days um yeah it's yeah it's interesting to see how perspectives change when you actually like live in an area and experience it Mm -hmm. and do you uh do you go to many gigs these days um obviously not now but like yeah yeah not not at the moment i used to be a lot more active at it Mm um i have def- like been in and out like been a part of the punk scene for like 15 years like half my life um mm-hmm. the past couple of years i've kind of quieted down a bit um for me it was a mix of just like life kind of shifting and finding that i couldn't like go out a couple times a week to a show until two in the morning um but I think like a big thing that kind of happened to me and changed it was coming out as transgender. And that was, I think like coming out to myself a couple years ago, then coming out to my partner about a year and a half ago, but also in that time looking at the scene that I was a part of and seeing like, okay, there's a lot of folks here who are really well-intentioned in words, but then this is a very cis white dude scene and I'm starting to realize that I connect with it like less and less. It's like, since then starting to like come out socially and transition socially amongst like friends that I've known for a long time, I've only really gotten support from those people. And I'm starting to see that maybe some of that was internalized stuff that I had to deal with that I was worried would be coming in from the other people in the community but mm. it's definitely like that had a bit of a a bit of an effect on me being able to go out as much as I want I feel like since I've come out I have been able to be back in those places and feel safe and feel accepted at the same time I would still love to see more people like me at the shows I go to <laughs> mm-hmm but. Yeah, that was going to be one of my next questions. It's like how, how you feel, whether you feel accepted as a queer person in the the punk scene. Because is there some connection there in like the 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 spirit of having been marginalized somehow, perhaps? Or I think there is, and I think like it does. It depends on the band and the exact scene. I think we right, right. anybody who's involved in punk knows that there isn't just one scene, but like. There are definitely bands, and, like, when I started, like, admitting to myself, okay, I'm not cis, I'm not this way that I've tried to be for a long time, there were bands like Reviver or Gloss or Dyke Drama that, like, had openly trans people in it, and I got to see that representation, and it was also, like, that representation that for the first time was really, like, okay, that's something I can connect with. And like, that feels really authentic and like really meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. I think like 
for me, having been in a punk scene in Montana, it wasn't those bands for a long time. It was scenes that were made up of predominantly guys, predominantly like, and while like a lot of those guys did like lean left politically, there were still also like a really big bro element in that punk scene. You got a lot of Pennywise fans and like <laughs> that aspect of punk where it kind of feels like they could also be like tailgating at a football game. Um, mm. And for like that side of it, I didn't really feel like there was a connection there. And, hmm. you know, you like, you grow up in a punk scene and there is kind of that talk of acceptance, but if you grow up as someone who does present to be cis and straight, like when you get around other guys, sometimes the comments that, that are made don't exactly fall into that like mindset. And so hmm. you hear like people that, you hear people say stuff that doesn't exactly make it seem like, okay, it could be safe to come out. Um, hmm. I feel like, you know, especially in the last couple of years, there has been a change in that where there has been like a lot more of an effort to make punk scenes and spaces like safer for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we all have to do work to kill the bro in our head. Um, <laughs> and like, I still have to work on that shit too um mm -hmm. you know it's like we grow up in a society where that shit's easily ingrained um so and it's like i do live in a place where the punk scene is safer mm -hmm. like and so i think as i come out where i do feel more connection in my own scene mm -hmm. i feel like that's a long ramble way to get from like <laughs> it's the losing the plot podcast you know and yeah yeah i mean like what I do is I have a list of questions for you, but I really feel like these conversations are most valuable where they do just take off into some other place and they really only get there by kind of thinking aloud with somebody. So for sure. feel free. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I did want to ask you about it. You you tell me when I've asked something that you don't want me to oh. talk to you about, whatever, you know, but um, how did you come to, how did you come around to discovering that you were transgender? It was, I think a lot of it came moving to Seattle to like help me be able to identify that. It's like growing up, I had those hints, but I didn't have the vocabulary or the experience to be able to tie in what it was. Mm -hmm. They were just kind of, I think probably just kind of impulses and like thoughts that I had that I felt completely freakish and just weird to like have and I just kind of tried to shove them away for a long time mm -hmm. and tried to like you know I I guess I didn't really have that comfy trans narrative where I knew at a young age exactly what it was and had like ways to fight for that through adversity and all that but I really like for a long time just kind of lived saying I want to be a guy and I want to like try and fit this role and I want to do what I can to like camouflage and live that even though I knew that didn't really feel right mm -hmm. I think when I was younger and I first saw like roles of like this is what transgender is it was through like I think I remember a special on HBO that showed a transgender woman coming out later in life and just like the negative impact it had on her family and all the drama and like, so that was kind of the narrative I was seeing. And I think that that's still kind of like a conventional narrative that's thrown about how like horrible and impactful it is for somebody to come out. And so it just made me think if I do this, there's going to be so much shame. Mm. Like when I moved to Seattle, it was kind of the first time that I got to see natural everyday representation of queer people. Like, and it was the first time I saw openly transgender people, like just living life. And like through that, then 
seeing things like Laura Jane Grace of Against Me coming out was like a big like punk culture I think big thing of like a, an openly transgender woman and, and <clears throat> bits like that really led me to see like okay so like how I've been feeling is like totally just what people feel I guess it's like there's nothing wrong with it um I think even like having that realization and I think I was probably like 25 or 26 where I kind of to myself realized like okay I'm not cis like I don't really know what that means yet but cisgender doesn't really feel like it fits where I am um mm -hmm. but it took me like a, several more years to like be able to get to the point where I felt ready to come out I mm -hmm. think to like my partner and then to like friends and just like greater into the community and I'm still in that process I think like there's still areas in my life where I'm not comfortably living that way you know I'm not comfortably out so mm -hmm. it's you know you, you'd like to think that there's just like one moment where you come out and that's it not that it's something that you have to like do over and over and over and over again like some fucked up groundhog day scenario <laughs> um, yeah yeah hmm and I, I mean, um all, all i can compare it with is like being gay it's true like every new person you meet automatically assumes that you're straight more most of the time women yeah. less so because women give less of a shit but yeah. like uh, yeah some days you just can't be bothered you're like uh yeah. the, the vibe you're giving off how long i think we're going to be talking i don't know if i could be bothered having this chat with you you know absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like there's such still an idea of what gay or straight or transgender looks like mm. in our world where it's like if you don't fit into that neat box of what someone thinks it looks like, mm -hmm. it's going to be like so much harder for them to understand it, I think. Um, like, I don't feel like personally, I have a lot of the mannerisms that like some people would assume a transgender person would have. Mm. And it's tough because I think that for a lot of people, even if they know I'm out, they might still think like, well, that's a guy wearing women's clothes. Mm. Just because I know that like, I don't have a feminine voice and I like, don't maybe have some of the affectations that people would assume would like a transgender person would have. Mm -hmm. I think that we're still, as we move to a society that even though we've, we've got a lot of work to do, <laughs> like, we're getting to like a more open and understanding society. Um, mm -hmm. But there's still so many of those scenarios that we have to, we have to work through. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of kind of strange retrogressive chat about what, about what men and women do, what they're supposed yeah. to do and how they should fit into antiquated roles and things that I think is putting pressure just on on everyone in general um and I uh don't feel don't feel especially male but I feel like I should be accepted as a man even though it's like I, I it just it, I don't know I'm like I cry all the time and you know like really stupid stuff that you're not supposed to associate with yeah with the gender role I think I guess um I, I guess it's something we all experience to greater or lesser degrees um absolutely yeah it's, do you feel like but do you feel some sort of pressure to perform femininity i think that's definitely there yeah <laughs> it's uh yeah there is that pressure and like in a lot of ways i think i do want to perform that way because like there's a lot of stuff that i've felt like Growing up, there's always been that side that's felt like really feminine. Um, but there's also, we learn to like train ourselves to fit certain roles. So when I was younger, I was given that message at like a pretty young age about 
don't fit outside the masculine role. Don't allow that femininity to show. Mm-hmm. Um, don't cry. Don't do all this stuff. And so as like a, tra- a young trans woman who is trying to be a man, I spent a lot of time training myself not to feel that stuff and not to present that way. And it's like, it's almost like just this fucked up, like black humor irony that now that I'm out and I'm trying to like take that femininity back, there's parts of me that feels like I don't even know how to anymore. (laughs) Just cause like I spent so long doing what I could to keep it from being a parent. Mm. I've heard that it can be like a second adolescence in a way, like trying, do you find that you're, I don't know, sculpting new parts of your personality or developing a new identity? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. It's definitely, it's definitely there. It's like, as I think I started to come out and especially the interactions that I had with people that are close to my life that have been really accepting about it. Um, The way they've treated me and allowed me to be treated has allowed me to kind of show different sides of myself as much as I can Mm. in ways that I've always been worried to act. Like I've felt more comfortable being able to lean into that and not being treated with ridicule and not being treated as if there's something like freakishly wrong with me has Mm -hmm. allowed allowed me to embrace that and take ownership of that more. Mm. Do you go back to Montana much? I have not been back to Montana in, I think 2016 was the last time I went back into Montana. Mm. It was right after the election here and I don't know. I just, I don't foresee myself going back very often anymore for, I think, a couple of reasons. Like my, my partner, her family still lives there. So I know that at some point we will go back to visit them. Mm-hmm. But I, my own family left within the past couple of years. I still have some friends there, but ultimately I don't have the desire to really go visit much as much as I do love some folks there Mm. there's that the big part that like sometimes I feel like if I do feel discomfort and danger walking in city streets in Seattle feeling that way in Montana is going to be amplified even more um Mm. but also the person that I was back then is not the person that I am now And I think that sometimes to be able to feel more okay with going forward, it's like, I have to like kind of let bits of that just go. And I think that that might mean just not really, not really going back and Mm. just kind of letting that area and that place in my life just kind of be in the past. Yeah, that's fair. Um, it must be really great to be the type of person who is like destined to grow up in the place where they were born. Just like, oh yeah, everything's great already. (laughs) Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've definitely met the mix of both where I have a lot of friends that like, they are so happy they stayed in Montana and they Mm. thrive there. And I'm so happy for them. There are other folks where it's just like, you could have done so well getting out but you're still just like getting fucked up at the same bar that we were getting fucked up when we were 20 and like uh but i don't know there are a lot of folks that like that's where their family is and their comfort like keeping they're comfortable with keeping that close relationship Mm. um and so like more more power to them for staying and finding a way to make it work yeah Fair. Um, 
But let's get to talking about your fantastic new book that is out as of this as week. Of, yeah, it was like last, I think this week was when I saw people getting copies. And so, yeah, I think that like this was officially like what I consider the release week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been really, really cool. It's not anything I've. I didn't expect to be releasing a book during a global pandemic. So that's been a, that's been really interesting, but it's mm-hmm. been something I've wanted for a really long time. And so it's just cool to see that happen, to see people getting copies and reading it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you... Uh... How would you explain what it's about to to listeners? So I made sure to have a copy here so I could try and do that as much as possible. Nice. Um, It's about, in in kind of a dying railroad town, a conjoined twin who murdered his brother is kind of wallowing in purgatory after being kicked out of a circus freak show. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a surgeon trying to reconnect with a lost love and both of them kind of getting wound up together with black magic to try and get their goals of either finding their redemption mm-hmm. and then horrible things happen. And <laughs> Nicely summarized, yeah. I think that's probably the best way. Um, mm-hmm. Sam Richard at Weird Punk Books, um, he and I spent a long time trying to think how can we describe this book and how can we try and market it because it I'd say it's probably the weirdest thing I've written um and it was very tough to try and think of a way of like how to sell it because it just feels like there's so much going on with it it's I've always like liked writing horror and writing weird fiction but this was like I think the first time I leaned into writing something really weird and it just came out strangely organically. Mm. And it's, I think it probably, it still took a few drafts, but a lot less time than like other stuff that I've written that might kind of be a little more conventional. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm really glad that Sam liked it because at first I didn't think that I could get anybody to read it. Yeah, it's great. So, uh, but also, how did you how did you know Sam? Um, I managed to sell my first short story. That my first like short story sale was to Sam for mm-hmm. his anthology "Zombie Punks Fuck Off," which we were both in. Um, and he through that process of just starting to like edit on that, we started just kind of communicating more. I went to BizarroCon in Portland in 2017, and he went well. He went there as well, and we both just connected and ended up hanging out all weekend. Um, and so we ended up starting to like be able to build a really nice friendship. Like, you know, Sam, he's one of the most personable guys, and just like a pleasure to know. And so yeah, it was really nice to be able to put out this book, knowing that I was able to work with a friend as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And how, what was that process like? A lot of it was, thankfully, like, the draft that I showed Sam, there weren't huge, like, plot issues we needed to change or much like that. So a lot of it was mm-hmm. just going back and forth with, like, cleaning up prose, making sure that things flowed well and made sense. Like, he caught a million typos that I had, like, glanced over. <laughs> um <laughs> So it was just like a few months of just back and forth, like trying to get the cleanest, most professional draft we could. Mm. Then he'd come in and bring awesome ideas of like including interior art um, and just all all sorts of ideas that I didn't even think were possible for the book. Um, Mm. And it came out just, the finished product was better than anything that I ever could have expected which is, mm. I think, exactly what you want when you're releasing a book. <laughs> that's a very good point. No, I mean, like, the internal artwork, like you say, and, like, the, the photography that's used and the design of it is a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, mm. the, the cover art from Neil Alk, like, it 
the night that Sam said that like he wanted to release it with Weird Punk, he was like, but I think we need to use this cover because this is what I want to use. <laughs> and it was just like, it, immediately, it just clicked. It was like, that fits this book so well. And I maybe Sam was just waiting for the right book to use this picture for. <laughs> but I, yeah, I'm so happy with how it looks, how it reads, mm -hmm. like the format. He... Sam does a wonderful job. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, for a book with such an unusual premise, it's very, uh, it's very tragic. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. More unexpectedly than I think when I wrote it, which mm -hmm. I wrote the first draft back in, I think it was like the beginning of 2018. I started to write it, and I don't know. I, I think I was kind of in a weird spot. I had gotten sober about, like, a year prior and was definitely dealing with some, I think, changes with my emotions and everything like that, kind of getting used to that. And it was right before going into therapy. And so I was mm -hmm. kind of in a an odd spot mentally, I think. And mm -hmm. when I like revisited the book, I was surprised to find there to be like a little more tragedy than I thought and a little more like weird humor and just not what I expected, I mm. guess. And it wasn't what I remembered writing, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, I think, but a lot of it kind of deals with looking at regret and kind of like, I know that at the time I was thinking about like a lot of regret that I had in my life and was trying to take those emotions and like put that into what I was writing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of just a big theme through it is mm -hmm. like at some point we're all scrambling to try and like find redemption for something we've done mm -hmm. or something that we wish that we could just like change. And then a large part of the book is two characters trying to find that redemption through extreme means. And it gets absolutely absurd, but it's, I guess that was me trying to like with writing connect to something human that we might all feel. Yeah. Um, there's a really wonderful sense of place there as well. Is it, uh, Spudsville is the name of this place. Yeah, right. Spudsville. Um, is it based on anywhere in particular? It's not. It's, uh, right. I had been reading a lot of, um, a lot of Joe Lansdale at the time when I wrote it. And especially, I think the two books that had really like stuck out to me at that point were Sunset and Sawdust and Freezer Burn. And both of those kind of like the locations in those books are those like Sunset and Sawdust is a historical book about like the great depression and like freezer burn is just more kind of on his bizarro side but both of them deal with that run downtown that's just like economically collapsed and like folks are just kind of meandering around in like situations where there's not a whole whole lot of resource and so i was kind of playing with that same idea um mm. wanting to create a place that was just like bleak and depressing but funny at the same time I guess mm -hmm. um at least I thought it was really funny as I was writing about it um and now I've had some folks like ask like if it was any place based on Montana or anything but it's not that wasn't my Montana town right um, yeah no it again it was like I think it just kind of came as like an organic place where I and it was, I think, my first attempt at trying to world build a place. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that that it has that sense of place in it. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, how do you feel compared to the person who wrote the book? I feel happier. Mm -hmm. That's uh, yeah. It, it's funny. I think we all look back at work that we've written in the past and we're obviously always in different places when we write certain things mm. um and i don't know if this would be the book i'd write now 
if I were to like pick up and start writing something again. Um, but I'm happy that I wrote it. I think it does like, there's a lot when I look back onto it where I can feel things that I was feeling back then that are different mm. now. Um, but it's interesting. It's fun to like see this book is just like a little bit, a little bit of me on a journey, I guess. Mm. And me on a journey to get to where I am now. Yeah. And, that's what all books are ultimately i think that um we all look back and say uh oh god i i wouldn't have written this now and uh i've heard even other writers say that to me as well and i think that's very much the point it's why you write them at the time um there's definitely things that i've written back on i've read of my own stuff looking back on it and i respect my former self a bit more because i'm like wow i forgot i felt like that absolutely you know like you said yeah and um, then you're like, oh, cheers for keeping me going. I remember that, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Definitely. That's, um, yeah, that's, it's a very fun, introspective part of writing that yeah. I think we look at books as like finished products that we try and sell, but it's really cool to kind of see them as, I guess, internal placeholders. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, there's a quote I... I uh, quoted recently was um, all works of art are they're never finished they're always abandoned. Absolutely. Just to know yeah. when to abandon them. Yeah. There's a point where you just go, God, should that sentence be too? Do you know what? I don't give a shit. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think it'll ever be perfect for us as the writers. But there's that point where you just kind of have to let it go. Yeah, absolutely. There's not a single person I know who uh, has ever created something perfect and who also isn't, as a person creating it, much more aware of its flaws than anyone else ever will be, really. Um, For sure. So you can always go feel reassured by that, I think. Um, I'm so glad not to be not to be the same person I was in my 20s and not have to write the same stuff I did in my 20s as well. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I write like now I think my writing is like a lot more fun and like way more about just obscure stuff that only interests me (laughs) like try try my very best to convince other people of it but if they're not convinced that sorry (laughs) sorry yeah I think like that is a fun evolution that as writers we do see that like when you start writing you are very much leaning off of stuff that you've read I think and like you're trying to you you start writing for that way of like I think this is what other people would want to read because I really liked this Hmm. but as you write more you start to realize that you are writing for yourself Hmm. and you are writing for like it is what you want to read but you are writing with you as the audience member if that makes sense that's kind of how I feel about it with that evolution I know Hmm. that like when I started writing, I was reading like a ton of like Jack Ketchum and Ed Lee and like that really extreme horror. And so everything was like, okay, I want to write like as minimal plot as I can, but figure out how I can get people to fuck organs in like a different way. <laughs> Thinking like that would be what me at that age would want to read. <laughs> but, you know, as you progress in the craft and you find all the other pieces that are needed I feel like your insight for what writing should be and how personal it can be really starts to come out mm-hmm. clearly like no no shame for those that do love reading and writing about just fucking organs because like hey if it's if that's your jam then <laughs> yeah liter- literature is a, a safe way to explore that Yes, it's a broad and, and rich, colorful fields. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I started um, reading, when I was really becoming just more of an avid reader after like in my teens, I had kind of fallen out of that. But it was like that really transgressive horror that like drew me back in. And my partner asked me to read her like one of the books that had really connected with me. 
And so I chose Ed Leaves the Big Head. And right. <laughs> she just, like, halfway through, something's just like, you like the dumbest shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it <laughs> definitely, like, I think that there's a lot of that stuff that I've kind of grown out of, but I still love, like, the transgressiveness of some of that. <laughs> it's not for everyone, for sure. Yeah. But, yeah. It's strange, like, when when I think of my own my own influences, the writers that maybe I haven't even read for a very long time, but uh, had an influence on me at the time, and maybe I would read it now and not have that influence. And yeah. so really... I guess what influences me is my impression of their writing at a certain time in the past. Absolutely. Uh, the problem with that is that I keep recommending these writers having no idea what it would be like to read their stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I I can definitely feel that. I think mm-hmm. like if I look back on I'd say like for one of the writers that had like a really big impression on me before most was Bukowski, who like he, like when I was a teenager and it was really hard to get me to read anything, he managed to take just like the monotony of living and living as like a lower class person and somebody who's pretty much ambitionless, but do something really beautiful with it. Um, Hmm. But I, there's no way that the person I am now would be able to connect with that work the way I did then. Mm. It's also like, I watched the Bukowski documentary where he fucking like kicked his ex-wife out of a chair or something. And it's very hard for me to make like excuses for even like a great prolific writer when you see that kind of behavior. I definitely have a harder time separating the art from the artist than a lot of people do. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that was going to be what I was going to ask you next. So do you, do you, uh, what happens to work that you've enjoyed once, once it becomes, once the context changes? God, it's like, it's tough. And I definitely, it's nuanced and I probably contradict myself with a lot of it because I can understand that nobody's, Nobody's perfect, but it's tough when, like, you hear that somebody is abusive or assaulting to keep wanting to support them and give them money. Like, with punk, my favorite band for a long time was Screeching Weasel, but then, like, 10 years ago, I watched a video of the singer punching a woman in the face at a concert, and then Mm. just, like, that band becoming kind of a safe haven for shitheads after that, and... I can really, at the same time, I remember that that songwriter really wrote songs that when I was a younger person, I could really connect to, especially a lot of songs about alienation and certain things that on a greater perspective, I could see that I really needed that at the time to get through. Mm -hmm. But I won't touch one of their albums now. I won't recommend one of their albums now. It's just like, it's, I can understand that there's great art that served its purpose at one point, but... There's so many better artists that or writers that you can read now than Bukowski. That will give you the exact same thing that Bukowski gave me then. Yeah. But it's not going to be a bunch of fuckheads. Yeah, fair. Um, it's everything on a case-by-case basis, right, isn't Absolutely. it? And for, for each individual to decide, I think, how they feel about it. Um, yeah, totally. Um, what else do I want to ask you about? So you also love C-list horror films. Yes, absolutely. Mm. <laughs> um, I've always, always loved connecting with that stuff. Um, I think sometimes movies that definitely aren't the standards of what we'd call a good movie have even more heart in it than... <laughs> than definitely, yeah. Um, mm. Within this last week, just with a couple friends... You know, during quarantine, trying to figure out how connect how to connect with each other, just using doing Skype calls and watching bad movies together. We just watched Night Killer, um, which was, from what I understand, released in Italy, but first like 
advertises Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, even though, mm -hmm. A, there was already a Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, and this has absolutely nothing to do with that series. So they chose the name Night Killer, but the thing that got me the most is that nobody is killed at night. <laughs> Every show happens in the daytime. Um, and I don't know, there's always been a charm to me in that imperfect art. And I think it always goes back to we look at, and I think it's an absolute great film, that first Evil Dead, where yeah, like that team made that movie on like no budget whatsoever over like a full year and like the worst conditions that you could make a movie. And though the sequels and everything that came out after that had a greater budget, that one, the heart that's in it is just so it's what's drawn me back for like 20 years of watching it now. Um, and I think there is just like a magic, a magic with that, like lower budget, like cheesy filmmaking that often gets lost when we're mm. looking at like production and what we might consider to be like cleaner and better movies. Yeah. I'm in the middle of directing a no budget film. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Uh, we're just, it's me and a bunch of people. I have a filmmaking club here, which I started with no knowledge whatsoever and just like took out my phone and was like, you guys, you can use a phone these days. And they were like, <laughs> they were just like, so wait, did you study this at university or something? I was like, no, I've got a phone. <laughs> so it's, but I totally agree with you. Like in order to inspire them, I was showing them like, uh, like, do you know Mumblecore, the genre of films? Oh Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I would watch that stuff over, like, the Avengers every time. Even though Absolutely. it's not even about, like, it's not even about anything that deep. But just because they're, like, friends and you're watching the chemistry of that and the, the, the love of the form, it's so much more endearing than anything, anything. Like, it's easier in writing, um, especially now with so many indie publishers, that, like, writing is, it's just words so you know it's pure creativity. But with filmmaking, yeah. like, that's lost because you get fancy tools and interesting lights and angles and stuff that you can you can lean on more so that you forget it's also just a, a creative vehicle like any other, you know? Absolutely. Hmm. And I feel like kind of coming from the sense of like a punk background and having been involved in like punk communities, you get that sense of like DIY since like that's such an ethic that's been put into punk and bands like put out their own records and like skip the middlemen and do like there is that sense where if you want to do it just fucking do it and I think that's so much more beautiful than having like the big productions and producing something that's people are going to love just because it is what it is people are going to love an Avengers film because it's an Avengers film mm. um and I think, like, when I was a kid, like, connecting with trauma films, for that reason, it was, like, <laughs> so many of them, like, didn't need to be a thing, but they yeah. were a thing, and that was why it was so beautiful, and knowing that, like, they were often made by people that had no clue how to make a movie, but mm -hmm. they just, like, they allowed people to just band together and, like, do it as this great experiment, and mm. like the art that comes out can sometimes be mixed, but it's amazing that they got to make it. Uh, this this one showed up like. Oh yeah. Have you read it? I have. It's been so long. Uh, I think okay. it was like 15 years ago that I read it, and okay. I remember like reading that, and it was before even like trying to like write any fiction I started trying to like write really bad screenplays right after it and I was like 16 years old I think like trying desperately to like get my friends to like work with me to try and make movies that I thought were going to be so brilliant but none of those ever pushed past like me trying to just like write screenplays but mm. Like, yeah, like, Lloyd Kaufman is, like, the exact embodiment of that just love. Mm. Doing it for the love. And yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think in all uh, in all mediums, now it's it's never been easier to just get going. And I know that um, the more I hang out with certain people who have like studied this creatively, whether it's like I, I go to a photography club here because I wanted to learn about composition and all those kind of things. I've got the film club that I started. There's like a lot of writers I talk to. Like the more the more you studied it, the more incentive there is for people to pretend that you have to study it in order to make something great mm-hmm. um i don't ha- i don't have to help them feel like that's true <laughs> you know absolutely because <laughs> i don't think it is i mean yeah i think actually just um i, I don't know like learning you see like because i watch a lot of youtube videos on how to make films and everything and they're like this is how to make a beach look pretty in the ways that like beaches are made to look pretty nowadays. And it's like, well, Mm -hmm. okay, if I do that, it will be technically competent and and completely forgettable. Why, why do you, why should I learn to do that? You know? Yeah. I think that's a mistake. Um, Absolutely. Oh, for sure. I can't like, I think any kind of like Seattle literary community I will never connect with because there's immediately that like sense of, oh, you're a writer. Well, how did David Foster Wallace impact you? And it's like, I, how did the baby Jesus butt plug impact you? Like, <laughs> I feel like there's definitely, when you get into lit communities, there can be a very much of like pretentiousness and gatekeeping where if you're like not connected with certain if you're not connected with certain literary standards, you're not actually a writer. Um, mm. If you're not wearing that tweed tweed jacket with the fucking like leather leather elbow pads, then you're not a writer. It's, yeah. I don't know. It's, I think that's why I was always like really drawn to Bizarro and like Indie Lit and like the like small press community because again there's that feeling of like being outside and there's that kind of like there is that punk feel to it again Hmm. it's you're allowed to make your own rules and you're allowed to like write what you want to and you don't have to lean into what somebody thinks like qualifies as good literature yeah absolutely i I think the the notion of a true artist and everything is just is has only ever been harmful to me that that concept absolutely um, and it has only as you make it so as you suggest as well has only really existed to to eliminate people for no real reason yeah um, so yeah it's total nonsense i think like getting getting better as a writer for me is just realizing all the things i don't have to do I don't even have to like don't even have to discuss books with people, which isn't something I particularly enjoy doing. But that's got nothing to do. It's got nothing to do with being a writer. It turns out. It's like, oh yeah. god, there's so many ways. I mean, um, yeah, there's so many ways in which, when you are like vulnerable and new to a category that you want to exclude yourself from it somehow, or or, or prove your worth in ways that that no one's asking you to do. I don't know. For sure. Yeah. So what comes next from you? You working on anything? I, I very slowly, I am. Um, definitely, I think with current circumstances and all that, I have a lot of time to write, but I haven't been writing because I think mm-hmm. that just being able to wrap my mind around like the current world we're living in and yeah. being able to like focus enough to do it. But I'm working on a second novella, which is very, very different from the Mud Ballad. It's uh, currently titled Safe Harbor, and it's a weird crime novella that kind of explores some of the socioeconomic issues facing Seattle, while also kind of being the first thing that I've allowed. It's like the first time that I've written about my own queerness and my own experiences as being a transgender person. Hmm. And so it's something that's a lot more personal than things that I've worked on in the past. And it's also Mm -hmm. something that like within 
I think I'm going to be about to be starting the third draft on it soon. Mm -hmm. But it's changed so much from just the start. And I think it's like a lot of that change is due to the fact that I have been coming out. And like, as I continue to transition into a different role, my mindset has changed and that's made the tone of writing about it change. Mm. And from what started to be something that was very bleak, I'm finding is becoming more hopeful, I guess. That's great. Yeah, so mm. no no idea when that will be done, if it will ever be done, but it's where I'm at. It's uh it's interesting and it's I really like enjoying I've really enjoyed exploring the crime genre and like noir as something to use those tropes to explore queerness has been really fun. And I think especially a lot of the crime that I've read falls into that very hard boiled noir that can like read as being very misogynistic. <laughs> I think looking at like works from like James Elroy and, and the likes, um, but there's so much exploration of like the flaws of masculinity in those books and like mm. I felt like for my own writing and being able to approach the subject I was able to take those as an influence and be able to kind of explore my own personal experiences under those lights if that makes sense yeah very cool cool it's so lovely talking to you what are you doing with your Sunday afternoon um not a whole lot this whole like past week I've been applying for teaching jobs for next year because I'm trying mm -hmm. to finish up my schooling as well and I end up with like 10 interviews over the past week so I'm just like trying to mentally decompress from like having to constantly sell myself to strangers over and over again mm. so it's really nice out here probably just going to take my dog for a walk and just enjoy the day that's cool I'm I'm going to go to bed and try and find probably try to find some good horror films for the week, right? So I I'd never seen I'd never seen Friday the thirteenth or Halloween before. So me and my partner, we watched those and we got up to we just quit Halloween four because we were like, this the quality is going way down. Oh yeah. Um yeah. Do you have any horror recommendations? Um I'm trying to think of stuff that I've watched lately. Movies that, like, in the group that we've been, like, watching movies just a couple times a week with includes, like, Sam and then, like, the writers Ryan Harding and Lucas Mangum. Um, mm. We've been watching a lot of just, like, those cheesy C-list movies, but we recently just watched Robo War, which is a... <laughs> it's, like, an action horror movie that's very much a knockoff of, like, Predator and um commando and movies mm -hmm. kind of like that and it's absolutely ridiculous and so much fun and it's like definitely falls into like the like macho action tropes which can just be like so cheesy and mm -hmm. hilarious to watch um i'm trying to think of anything else that like i've watched recently for like more like really fun cheese. Have you ever seen Slugs? No. Ah, uh, that's that is a great okay. one. Um, it's it's Killer Slugs. Killer Slugs. Killer Slugs. Like, okay. That's all you need to know about it. <laughs> Killer Slugs and the people that they fuck up. Is. Cool. <laughs> um. Yeah. I'll if I can think of anything any others, I'll let you know and send yeah, you a message. Please. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. awesome. Leah, thank you so much for talking with me. This was so much fun. It really was. If you yourself would like to be on the show, if you want to tell me something about the show, please get in touch using losingthepotpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, I always look forward to hearing from you. But that's all for me for this episode. Thank you for listening. And until next time.